So Jeff, as I mentioned, is on vacation. Um, and you know, when he was planning his, his time off, I was peeking at the, uh, at this sermon series, knowing that I was going to get to, to preach one of these texts that was coming up. And so I kind of had my eye set on two or three and let's be honest, we all have a sweet spot. And, uh, I was just kind of giddy actually when I found out that this was the week he was going to be gone. No offense, Jeff, love you to death. But I love this topic. And he had picked this verse already. He had gone through and we're walking through Ephesians and it's a powerful book, a powerful letter. And um, there's just a profound simplicity and beauty with multiple layers to this very short verse that Linda just read us. So we're going to dive into them. But before we do that, um, you know, Jeff always prays at the beginning of a sermon and there's a reason for that. Uh, many of you may have already know this, but it's what we call the prayer for illumination. And basically it's just asking God for us to have a special sense of grace, to get out of our own way, that we would hear the word of God in a way bigger than ourselves and bigger than the person speaking it. So would you pray with me? God of truth and of beauty, we welcome you and your presence and your words into this space. We ask that we would be transformed by the hearing of your word, that you would soften our hearts and open our ears that you would make us a people of challenge and of forward motion and of action and of love. May my words be a tool for all that is good that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going through the letter of Ephesians. Jeff has set some of this up a little bit, um, but it's really important anytime we talk about any verse anywhere in the Bible that we have a good framework for where it was coming from because Really, especially when we get into the letters of Paul, it's a lot like listening to a conversation on one side of the telephone from somebody who's talking to a person in another country. So there's a lot that we need to take apart. So here's what's fascinating and fun is that it's very different and yet, let's see how it might be the same. Because Ephesus was this robust metropolis with a construct of power that had been developing for almost 400 years. It was an authoritarian, majestic, militaristic structure of power and bureaucracy. But Ephesus itself was also very diverse, both culturally and religiously. And at the same time, the prevailing ideology of the land was something that promoted a pursuit of youth, of possessions, and personal experience above all. But the problem with prosperity at all costs is that it's rooted in this robust every man for himself-ism that uh, Machiavellia would have find, found inspiring. But it's kind of funny when we think about what Ephesus was like and what the culture was like at the time. How so much can change in 2,000 years over the span of thousands of miles and yet somehow oddly stay the same. We human beings are a funny bunch that way. The author of this letter um, attributed to Paul, though most scholars think it was just somebody writing in the style and under the name of Paul, was writing to a group of newly baptized Christians. So this is what's really neat. These were people who had participated in a ritual, a beautiful, profound ritual, marking their death and resurrection into a new life and a new community. When you were baptized in the early church, it was still kind of like a Jewish baptism 
where it was, though they called it something very different, it was a, it was a cleansing bath, where you walked down into this deep pool or river and you walked across and came out the other side. And as you came out the other side, you were greeted by the people of your new faith community. You were welcomed as somebody who had once been dead and now was alive in Christ. It was a, a meaningful ritual that they spent a lot of time preparing for. And so that's who this, this author is writing to, is the, are these new Christians, newly baptized, and they are new believers from very different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds. And this author was writing to try to offer them a third way between the old traditions of their past, their families, and the shiny lure of empire with all of its power and posture. So after what feels like a lengthy list from a concerned parent, you know, when I read the first part of Ephesians, it reminds me of when my adult daughters headed out to college and you realize that they're, they're adults oh my goodness, and here's all of the things I forgot to tell you. And so you, it's this rattled off list of the do nots of life, of Christian life. And yet it lands here in this kind of catch your breath moment before giving them a reminder of their new identity as well as a very beautiful picture of what that looks like when it's lived out. The author gives a reminder that they are now members of this gloriously messy blended family of faith. And they're not really members of the prevailing culture or the empire anymore. They'd been marked differently with their baptism, dead to the old, alive to the new, and now they're people divinely enabled and invited, maybe even commanded, to usher in a new and very different world. One that is ripe with truth, goodness, justice, and belonging. And you know what this reminds me of? Pirates. That is probably not the answer you were expecting. And that's okay, I get that. But here's why. You're probably familiar with the Jolly Roger, the pirate flag. It was an amalgamation of different symbols coming out of pirate culture that finally ended up being the skull and the crossbones. And we think of it as a symbol that was simply meant to inspire dread in the ships who saw this flag cutting through the fog and heading their way. And that's true, it did become that. But it was first and foremost a part of the pirate identity. Because when a sailor joined a crew of a pirate ship, Part of the ritual was that he had to take an oath in which he proclaimed himself dead. Dead to his old identity, dead to everything he had known, and dead to the empire. Because for a pirate, if you or your ship was captured by the Royal Navy, you, you had a death sentence. It was a sure thing. So by declaring themselves already dead, they were free to live as men with, with nothing to lose, and they could work and sail and live their lives outside of the rules of society or the norm. Their only code and their only promise was to the work that the captain had commissioned them to do. And they were reminded whenever they hoisted that black flag with the crossbones and the skull, who they were and what their work was supposed to be. They were also reminded of those 
with whom they shared this wild, rebellious commission. Not just the ones on their ship, but anyone flying that flag. It was a sign of their code and also a sign of their fraternity. So what does that have to do with these two verses and what does that have to do with us? Well, our baptism is the pirate flag under which we sail and it's marked us as dead to the rules and the norms and the expectations of empire. You know, it's right here in verse 8. I love how succinct this, this is. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live your life as children of light. See, now we're called to remember that our identity is as the light. Not in the light, but as the light. This is who we are. And what the empire, what the culture, has normalized as values and the meaning of life, we are called to, to ignore and maybe even to challenge and to push against. Things like the pursuit of self above all else, vengeance, authority rooted in power and might, greed, the dehumanization of those who are different than us, abuse, and also just a callousness to all of the things of soul. But here's the thing. Sometimes we confuse our faith as a thing we do instead of embracing it and living into it as our identity. Religion, our faith, our spirituality, it can so easily become a club card with member benefits or a private personal thing. But it's so much more than that, and, and we're called and invited into something so much more than that. Our faith identity is who we are when we're alone with our own thoughts. It's who we are when we're alone with God, when we're with our family, when we're with our faith community, our extended community, our neighbors, who we are when we are doing our work and our life's business in the world. It's what we do, what we create and nurture that's the evidence and the portrait and the fruit of this identity. The author of Ephesians says that the light, light, our identity, who we are, that it produces fruit that consists of every sort of goodness, justice, and truth. I love that. Goodness, justice, and truth. And these are the evidence of light evidence of those who've been baptized into this family of faith. And those don't necessarily sound like high values of our current culture or empire. But when it comes to these values of the kingdom, this fruit that we're called to bear, we can't just pick and choose because, you know, on their own, each one of these things, they sound delightful. Goodness, what is there not to like? Justice. But on their own, they're lovely, but they lose their teeth. Justice without truth or without goodness is retribution. And sometimes it's even revenge. Goodness without justice is a kind of fluffy niceness. And sometimes even prudishness. And truth without goodness is cruelty. 
You know, that one I stole straight from Gandhi. He says that truth without compassion is cruelty. Truth without goodness can be cruelty. But if we want to know what the whole picture looks like, all we have to do is look at the life and ministry of Jesus. You know, he himself used the words of a prophet to paint a picture of what it means to do the work of light. When he began his ministry, he walked into the synagogue and he opened the scroll of Isaiah and read these first few verses of what we know to be Isaiah 61. It's a proclamation that says, The Lord God's Spirit is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning. Now that one, wait one second, because we tend to think of that as just something um, that's a lovely gesture, but here's the meaning of that. This was written to a people that uh, by heritage, by nature, had coarse curly hair. And whenever we read about oil, especially in the Old Testament, it was a way of cleansing the hair, the beard, but it was also a way of of making yourself presentable, of putting yourself um, in a place of knowing your own dignity. That kind of getting fully dressed up and prepared, it's like after a great day at the salon, right? You just feel like a million bucks. But it, that's what it was, is it's not just crown in place of ashes, oh, that's a lovely idea, oil in place of mourning. It is literally taking the notion of restoring people to their own sense of dignity. a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord to glorify himself. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore formerly deserted places. They will renew ruined cities, places deserted in generations past. You know, with the reading of this text and then the work he began, Jesus lived out the words that he later taught us to pray. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, not sometime in some surreal future, Jesus brought the kingdom. And now we are called to continue to bring the kingdom. And this is that work, to bring good news to the poor, which means that, yes, we address their immediate physical need, we provide food, we work to give them shelter, but it also means that we must speak truth to the powers that keep people impoverished. We invest in our cities and those desecrated spaces by bringing our commerce, by creating relationships. We plant gardens, community gardens, and we, we value beautiful public art. We understand the value and the need for beauty when it comes to the human experience. But it also means that we must call out the systems, the institutions, and the structures that choose property over people. We can visit those in prison and we can lead all the Bible studies that we want to behind bars, but if we don't fight for fair sentencing, if we don't understand the need for prisoners' rights and their dignity, 
if we don't understand the value of rehabilitation over incarceration, then we're not being the light. Maybe this is a challenge. Maybe what I am saying makes you uncomfortable. I know that I am uncomfortable. I know that I fidgeted hard when I had started to unpack what it really meant for me to live out the faith that I profess. It wasn't just about my comfort anymore. It wasn't just about my personal religious experience. There was a, a call to challenge the things that I had been taught. What I'd been taught was normal in culture, was normal as a human experience. Taught to challenge the institutions that run our society in the things that, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, I had been taught about other people. What it means to be good. My ideas around justice, around real mercy and real goodness. Because when we realize that we are light and that Jesus wasn't only speaking to people, but he was speaking to power and to institutions, when Jesus was flipping over tables, he was also flipping over the norm. And so now it's not so easy to fit into the old system anymore. When we think about being light and producing fruit, we have to accept that our identity is that we are rebels crying out for and building with our own hands a culture of love and a family and belonging in a world that is always planning for war. Your baptism has marked you. And so remember this, my friends, because we are people who sail under a different flag. And will you pray with me? Holy God, we know that you care deeply about the way our world works, about the comforts and the care of creation of each other. We know that you are a God whose heart breaks for the poor, for the disenfranchised, and that you are the first to weep when people are crushed by systems that just seek to oppress. God, we ask for a new imagination and a boldness and a courage to go be light in places where the darkness threatens to creep. Give us the courage to speak truth to power, but God, also give us hearts that are soft, hands that are willing to reach out and love tenderly those with whom we walk. Give us a beautiful new picture of what it means to live dead to ourselves and fully alive in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus who we follow. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's Sunday Sermon. For more information on growth groups or how to more fully embrace the life of faith, visit us at www.trinitylincoln.org.